Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It's great to see you this morning. Would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 34? I thought you probably thought you got away with it last week, but you're turning back there again. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, Old Testament left-hand side of your Bible. No shame in using the table of contents. If you're using your phone, it's spelled C-H-R-O-N-I-C-L-E-S, 2 Chronicles chapter 34. We're looking at some dads of the Old Testament who are even worse than I am. (laughs) I guess that's actually not the case for today, but that's generally the theme of this series is don't do what they do. The title is is Blank Parenting, and each week we're putting a different type of parenting, type of bad parenting in that blank. And this is a relatively easy series to preach because <laughs> it seems like most of the dads of the Bible aren't very good. And so last week was naive parenting, naive parenting. And that was Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat had a blind spot. And the blind spot was he didn't quite realize the significance of his allegiances or his allies with unbelieving people. He had raised his kids, he had raised his son in a godly home, but he married off his son to a non-believing girl. And he didn't quite realize the implications of that. He was naive to the impact of the marriage relationship and the, and the closeness, and that eventually pulled his son's heart away, and that he eventually led to the, the entire downgrade of the, of the kingdom that even got his grandkids killed. He didn't expect any of that from that naive little decision there in marrying off his son because that's just what everybody else did. And I think Christians today still have a blind spot like that too where we don't quite realize the impact of close alliances and close ties with those people who are not believers. doesn't mean we can't have friends who are not Christians. It's important that we do so that our light can shine before men in such a way that they see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. But it's the close allegiances that then could eventually drag our hearts away from the Lord. Now, today is not really a bad type of parenting. And I actually thought about preaching this sermon at the end of this series, uh, as a cap at the end, but the things that we learn here, I think, really are more important at the beginning of a series on parenting than at the end. But the title for today is "Perfect Parenting." Now that doesn't sound bad. <laughs> like, it, of course, we want to do good. We want to do good. We want to be good parents. We want to honor our Lord and and raise good kids. And so that, that can't seem that bad. But today is perfect parenting. So today is for Any parent in here whose kids are now grown and out of the house and you have some regrets, you didn't say some things you wish you would have said and you did some things maybe you wish you wouldn't have done, so today is for anybody whose kids are out of the house and you have some regrets in the way that you parented them, and today is also for those of you who have kids in the home and you want to be a perfect parent. (laughs) You, you, You want to be one really bad. And so today is perfect parenting, almost seen as, as a, in a negative way, only because there's this, the problem with, with the idea of perfect parenting is you think you get all your X's and O's all in order, you do all of the right things, and then the exact math equation is a perfect kid. That if I do my part, if, I, if I'm a godly parent, if I do everything the way that I should, and, and I, I do it all just right, then God obligates himself to giving me a perfect child. And then when that doesn't happen, we begin to d- doubt God and His influence and His power. Sometimes, sometimes Christians think if I just read just the right children book, you know, just the right kids uh, uh, books on parenting kids, 
And then if I bring my kids to church just the right amount of Sundays, and I pray for my kids just the right amount of time, and I take Pastor Chuck's Growing Kids God's Way class, and I get the discipline graph, and I follow the graph in in disciplining my kids exactly the right way, then the math equation is I'm going to have perfect kids. But there's something about perfect parenting that you may not know, but by the end of today, we will all know. Now, I just want to be a little transparent here. Um, Preaching on parenting is intimidating uh, for a lot of reasons. It's an intimidating subject. For one, my parents attend this church. (laughs) And I could only dream of aspiring to be the good parents that they were to me. And... In addition to that, we have people in our church who have been parenting longer than I have been alive. And there are parenting pillars of examples in this room that Tanya and I look up to as examples for our parenting, and we would aspire and hope to be the type of parents that are right here in this room. So this is intimidating. Not only those two things, not only are my parents in here, not only do we have pillars of Christian parenting in here that stand as examples to me, my kids attend these worship services. They're in here today, right now. And man, they have stories about their dad. They're not going to tell them to you because I pay them a little more than you do. But they, they know me on my best day, and they know me on my worst day. They, they know how good of a dad I am, And they know how bad of a dad I am. And now they have an entire church watching them, just waiting for them to make the slightest misstep in their life. But they're going to make mistakes. I made mistakes when I was a teenager. I suspect you might have made one when you were a teenager. And so this is intimidating to, to preach on biblical parenting in a room like this. And not only all of those things, but I'm going to make mistakes as a parent. I will make mistakes. I, the very first mistake I ever made as a parent, Tanya let me have Caleb, our firstborn. She let me have him. For the very first time, I could do anything with him that I wanted to do with him. She had gone somewhere, and I was actually allowed to take him out of the house. And so, where do I go? Tyler Mall. (laughs) That's where I go. I go to the mall over here, and my very first mistake is I lock Caleb in the car. It's summer outside, and Caleb's in there, and my keys are in there, but it's locked up. What in the world do you do? I'm going to make mistakes. That's the point. And so this is an intimidating topic to to talk about, but I realize that I can't wait to teach on biblical parenting until I'm done because parenting is never done. When, When would this sermon ever be preached? And so it is intimidating. Um, And so that's why I'm holding tight to Scripture here, as I always do, because it's going to be Scripture that's going to teach us um, these things and teach me along the way as well. And so the topic for today is perfect parenting. I've never met a perfect parent. Well, I take that back. I've met one perfect parent. I was a perfect parent before I had kids. Does that sound familiar? Were you a pretty good parent before you had kids too? Oh man, before I had kids, I was a perfect parent. You go to the mall, speaking of the mall, 
I, I knew how to discipline all those undisciplined kids at the mall. I knew how to do it. I worked as a career before this. I managed children's educational stores. And so I was around kids and their moms and their dads every day, all day, Christmas time, seven days a week, morning, noon, and night. And I knew how to solve all of their discipline problems. I didn't say anything out loud, but if they would have just come to me, I could have told them how to solve all the problems in their family life. And then I had kids. (laughs) And I realized how much I really knew about parenting. The only perfect parents I know are those without kids. So if you're struggling in your parenting, if you have kids in the home and you're struggling with your parenting and you're not sure exactly what to do or how to do it, here's my recommendation for you. Find someone who doesn't have kids and they're sure to tell you what to do. (laughs) Now, they might not know what they're talking about, but they're sure to tell you what to do. And though we don't know all of what to do when it comes to being a parent, the Bible has some pretty uh, high standards when you begin to look at parenting. Let me just give you some of the expectations that the Bible has on parents. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says this, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially to those of his household, he's denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. One of the things that we need to do is provide for our children. Now, of course, that doesn't mean it has to be name brand and they don't have to have a cell phone at three months old. But we need to provide for our children, practically provide. And then beyond the physical provision, also there's other types of provisions that parents are to provide. It says fathers Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Not only do we provide for them practically, physical things, but we also provide for them instruction, how to to live life. And we try to discipline them in ways to try to wear off their rough edges and so that they can then participate in in society, uh, that they can get along with other people. And so we provide for them practically just with things. We then provide for them, here's how you live your life, and we try to help refine their life through discipline. But then that's not it as a responsibility as our parent, as a, as a parent. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is talking to parents. It says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, parents, and love the Lord with all your soul, parents, and with all your might, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And so as parents, not only are we just to provide for them physically and then teach them how to live life and kind of hone them for living life in a polite culture, not only that's not it. Now then it's something on us that we need to love the Lord and and begin to follow the Lord and love Him ourselves. That's what makes a a parent, great, is one who is following the Lord. But that's not even it. Then there's more to this verse. It says, then you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Teach what? You teach those words to your kids. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now we're discipling our kids. Diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. So even in just these three verses, 
there's all sorts of biblical directions and, and, and implications for parents providing physically, providing instruction on how to live life and discipline and honing your life so that you can get along with, with other people, and, and then growing in the Lord myself, and then helping my kids understand love for the Lord as well while they're in, in the house. And you look at all that and you realize, <laughs> I might not be a very good parent. I, I might not live up to those things. Now, I've never met a perfect parent. But the, the Old Testament has the closest perfect parent that I know of. You've turned to 2 Chronicles 34 because this is the life of Josiah. And, and Josiah is one of the few wonderful parents of the Old Testament. But there's something about being a perfect parent that comes out of his life that would be really good for you to know whether you have kids in the home, and especially if you have kids that are grown up, that are now adults, and now that have moved on. And so there are five phases of Josiah's life that the Bible recounts, and those five phases is going to be our outline for today. So when we get to number five, you know we're close to being done. The first one is he's a child. That's where we start out. In 2 Chronicles chapter 34, beginning at verse 1, we see what happens to him as a child. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of his father David, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And so as a child, Josiah, at eight years old, he becomes a king. Can you imagine you at eight? Being a king, I cannot imagine me today <laughs> telling anybody what to do about anything. Now, there's a reason that he is a king at eight, and I want to show that to you. You remember from last week this map of, um, this is modern-day Google map of the Middle East, and we have the Mediterranean on the left, and we have the Dead Sea, little blue there in the middle, and off to the right is all of the nations that want to wipe Israel off the map today, uh, Jordan and, and, and uh, Iraq and Iran. And so that's modern day. But the same area existed way back in the Old Testament when Josiah was alive. And God had promised to Abraham, which was the, the original kind of the, the father of the, the Jews, and he promised to Abraham that he would have a land, a promised land. God promised the land. That's what's called the promised land. And he made a covenant with, God made a covenant with Abraham, you'll have the land. Now, that land was right here in this area, in between the Dead Sea and the, and the Mediterranean Sea. That, that's where the land is. They're on the Fertile Crescent, a beautiful place of land that, was, that Abraham's name was on the deed. But Abraham never lived in it. He never occupied it. He just sojourned in the land, lived in tents. He never occupied it. And then the, his son, Isaac, never occupied it. He just sojourned in the land, set up tents, of flocks, uh, it was a herdsman, but never, never occupied the land. And then his son, then the next patriarch, Jacob, never occupied the land. And eventually... They end up in Egypt. Remember Moses or, uh, or Pharaoh and let my people go and Moses and all those things. They leave Egypt and they end up and they finally get the promised land. And all the 12 tribes of Israel are occupying this land that God had given them. Unfortunately, they couldn't hold it together. <laughs> the 12 tribes of Israel just couldn't hold it together and there was a divided kingdom. 
It was the same nation of Israel, the same people, same tribe, same people, but the, 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 the kingdom was now split. It wasn't a, a, a mono kingdom with one king. Now there are the same people groups, but now two kings. And so Josiah becomes the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He's now at eight years old, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And the Bible gives us his family tree and why he becomes a king at eight years old. Josiah's great-grandpa, so if you follow the the lineage, his great-grandpa, Hezekiah, great, great man of God. He never met him, though. Josiah never met him. So then we have his grandfather, and his grandfather was Manasseh, and he was a wicked, evil king in Judah in the southern kingdom. And then his son then became king, which is Josiah's dad, Ammon. And Ammon is like a double doozy of how bad his dad Manasseh was. So great-grandpa, great king. Never met him, though. You have your grandfather, evil, atrocious, terrible king. Then your dad is a double-down, double-digit evil king. And now... He's the king. But why is he king? Well, you skip up in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, it tells us why any of this occurred. 2 Chronicles 33, verse 21. Ammon was 22 years old. Ammon, that's the dad of Josiah. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned for two years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done, and Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and he served them. See, that's Manasseh, that's you know, Josiah's grandpa, that's, that's dad and son here that are, uh, that's happening. Moreover, he, this is Ammon, Josiah's dad, Moreover, he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had done, but Ammon multiplied guilt. He doubled down on it all. Finally, verse 24, his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his own house. But the people of the land killed all the conspirators against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah the son king in his place. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. So his dad was such an evil guy. He, he was leading the entire kingdom, the southern kingdom. I mean, these are God's people, that God led, led them here. And he was leading them to worship gods that didn't even exist, carven, graven images, having nothing to do with God and these worship centers that, that they had, had built. And it was so bad that his dad was assassinated by his close inner, closest inner group in in his cabinet. And so then everybody kills off them who killed him. And so now who's going to be king? Okay, let's pick the eight-year-old kid. He's now king. And as crazy as this is a like life history, uh, the, you know, the, the drama leading up to this poor eight-year-old boy's life, he ends up becoming the greatest, most godly king in the southern kingdom. That's, that's going to lead to a point that we're going to get to at the end of the day. If Jehoshaphat was one of the most godly, then I would say Josiah is the most godly king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so as a child, at eight years old, he's leading the nation. Now, 
the next phase of his life as he becomes a teenager. Let's keep reading in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Look at verse 3. It says, For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father, David. So let's stop right there for a minute. So he was brought in as the king at eight years old, and now it's been eight years in, uh, reigning. So how old is he now? Good. We can do the math. He's 16 years old. And at 16 years old, he puts his faith in the Messiah. Now, he didn't know everything about the name of Jesus. They didn't, he didn't know everything about the details. But he put his faith, he put his trust in the Messiah. He became a believer. We would call them an Old Testament believer. Now, today, as we live today, we know who that Messiah is who the Redeemer is. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that Josiah didn't have, that his name is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. God come to earth in the flesh, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, never sins one time. So when he goes to the cross, he's not dying for his sin, he's dying for humanity's sin, my sin, your sin. That's a good thing. The Bible says that we are separated from God because of our sin, the wages of sin is death. But the rest of that verse is, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, Though Josiah didn't know all of the words and he he didn't have those verses memorized yet because they hadn't been penned yet, Messiah put his faith in the Messiah. And what that meant was that, that when he died, he could be reconciled to God. That that the the death of Jesus Christ would, would, would reconcile him to the Lord. And so when an Old Testament believer died, he didn't, they didn't go immediately to heaven. They, they went to heaven essentially once Jesus Christ died on the cross and the payment was completed. And, and they then immediately, their souls are immediately transferred to heaven. And so today, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we're doing the exact same thing. We're putting our belief in who Jesus Christ is, that he is God, died on the cross for my sin. He's paid for my sin. We believe this that he is God, that he rose from the grave, and that proved that he could remove our sin. And therefore, he justifies us, or he reconciles us to God. We are far from him because of our sin. We are brought close because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. So he puts his faith in Christ at, at, as a teenager at 16, though he doesn't know the name Jesus Christ yet. And obviously, here it's showing that he has a fruit of his salvation, because he's earnestly pursuing God. Notice it says there that he began to seek the God of his father, David. Now, was his dad David? No. His dad, his dad was Ammon. We just read that. So this isn't his father as in his biological father. But for the kings, they went back to like the patriarch king. And the kings would consider that, that patriarch king as like their father of their kingliness. And of course, that was King David. King David in his best years was the best king that, uh, that, that uh, Israel ever had. And it will be David's throne that Jesus Christ return when he returns in the millennial kingdom will sit upon that Davidic, that Davidic throne, and he will lead the entire nation of Israel from that throne of David. The throne of David was so important to the kings, they would look back upon him and call him their father. Just like um, Jews will often say that Abraham is their 
father. Not that Abraham raised them in the home, but they call him, he's the patriarch of their of their Jewishness, of their uh, of who they are. And so that's why there's songs like Father Abraham. You know that song? Father Abraham had many sons. Maybe you had, you had, to, go to, you had to go to my Sunday school class to know this song. And many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them. You know, okay, so that's why the Jews will call Abraham the father is because they're looking back to the one that started it all, the, 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 the epic one. And so, of course, then as a king, jo- Josiah then is kind of compared to or relating to the King David. And so that's why it says the Father David here. But that means that he is pursuing the Lord at 16 years old, just like King David was pursuing the Lord as a man after God's own heart. Teenager, he gets saved. And that's often what happens in junior high and high school is often where people get saved. They put their faith and trust in Christ at that age. And it's also that point in time, that, that teenage age range, junior high and high school range, when teenagers who've been raised in a Christian home, they begin to make their parents' faith their own faith. That's what happened to me. I was raised in a Christian home. But it was in my teenage years, that's where it became my, my faith, my own. As the, as the influence of the parents are beginning to wane in those teenage years and the influence of, the teen, of, their, of their friends are beginning to increase, it's at this point in time where teenagers begin to make the decision, am I going to live for Jesus or am I going to test the, the waters of ungodliness? It's right at this age, right at the teenage years. Now, most of my friends, I've mentioned to you before, most of my friends claimed to be Christians. Now, that's not a hard thing to say because I went to a Christian school and so it kind of stands the reason. But most of my friends claimed to be Christians. But right at, this, right at this phase where the parents' influence is beginning to wane in these older teenage years and the, and the friends' influence is beginning to pick up steam, many of my friends decided to test the waters of ungodliness. And today they're drowning in them. But that was not the case for Josiah. At 16 years old, he loves the Lord He was already ruling correctly even at eight years old, we had already seen. But now at 16, he loves the Lord. He is seeking after God, and it is showing in his life. So things were going great for him as a teenager, putting his faith in Christ. Then we move on to the next phase of his life, which is being a young adult. Maybe we'd call it college age, being a young adult. Let's keep reading. Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 34 And we had read verse 3, let's look at verse 3, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. Okay, so that's when he was 16. Now, in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem in the high places, the ashram, the carved images, and the molten images. So now, now how old is he? He was eight, and now we're in the twelfth year of his reign. Now how old is he? 20. Good job. It's, I know it's Sunday morning, but it's late enough where we can do the math. He's 20 years old. And at 20 years old, he realized it's not just enough for me to seek God myself, that I need to 
get rid of all of what my, my grandpa and my dad set up in all of this uh, religious um, but ungodly worship. And so he begins to, to tear down everything that his grandpa had built and everything that his dad had added to, he's now tearing it down. And that's what the next few verses are about. Verse 4, he tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the, uh, the incense altars that were high above them and chopped down. Also, the asherim, the carved images and the molten images, he broke in pieces and ground to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then he burned the bones of the priests on the altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even as far as Naphtali in the surrounding ruins. He also tore down the altars and beat the ashram and carved the images into powder, chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel, and then he finally returned to Jerusalem. The spiritually positive impact on this people and on this nation is incalculable. It is a, it's amazing what a 20-year-old can do. It, it's, a, it's amazing what, what a young adult can get done when they have everything to gain <laughs> and nothing to lose. And that is, that is what young adult time is, in life is like. That's what the college age, even in our culture, is still like that. When you have a lot more freedom than you had ever had before, and you even have a, a few more resources than you ever had before, and that freedom and those resources can accelerate your devotion to God, or it can accelerate your devotion away from the Lord. And that is why you might know of people who grew up in Christian homes, and as soon as they kind of hit the young adult years, boom, they're gone because they have the freedom and they have a little bit of um, excess, maybe excess money or excess time. And that, that freedom combined with money and time will send, a, will send someone in one of two directions, closer to the Lord or further away from God. But when a, when a young adult loves God, it is amazing what they can get done because they have nothing to lose. They have everything to gain. That, that's why having young people in a church is so important, is so vital. You know, the, the older we get, the, the, there are things that, that we worry about losing. You know, we worry about losing our retirement or we worry about uh, losing our our, our marriage or our spouse because I can't go do that thing that I would have wanted to do. Now I'm married and, and now I can't go do that thing. We worry about uh, losing our job or we worry about losing our home or we worry about losing the social credits that we've built up within whatever little social culture we have. <laughs> but a young adult has none of those things. They have no home. <laughs> they have no retirement. They have no social credits that they built up. And it's amazing what a young adult can get done for the Lord when they're on fire for the Lord. Some of the greatest missionaries in the world, they headed out as young adults because they had this freedom and they had a little bit of extra time. And they followed the Lord into amazing places and became immensely impactful. And that's exactly what happened right here to uh, Josiah. 
is that he had the option. This was his time of freedom, and this was his time of he could kind of do what he wanted and he could accelerate towards the Lord or away from the Lord, but he accelerated towards the Lord, and it had a, an enormous impact on the, the nation that he was leading. And so even as a parent, it's, it's hard for me to think about my kids not following the, the cultural or culture's norm you know, as a young adult. What's our, the culture's norm is this. As soon as you graduate from high school, you'll go to RCC for two years. You go to junior college for two years. And then you go to a four-year college to get your degree. And then you go and you get a really good uh, full-time paying job. And then you buy a house. And then you find a spouse. And then you give me grandkids. That's the order, right? <laughs> Boom! That, that's, that's how our culture's order is. And it's certainly possible that 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 someone might be called to that exact direction. But it's also possible, I mean, we should leave open the potential that our kids might not be called to that. They might be called to the mission field somewhere that they could never go when they have a job and retirement and a spouse at, at 50, but they could go when they're 21. It's amazing what a 21-year-old can get done when they're on fire for the Lord, when they're passionate for the things of God. And that's exactly what occurred here uh, for uh, the, the kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah. The impact of Josiah was immense. And then he moves to another phase in his life, adulthood. He becomes an adult. Look at verse 8. Now, in the 18th year of his reign, so he was 8 years old when he became king. Now we're 18 years later. Now how old is he? 26. Yep, he's now 26. He now has children. And notice what it says here. He's now 18 years of his reign, and he had purged the land and the house, and he sent these, these guys, there's four guys here, sent these guys, look at the last sentence, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So he realized Josiah realized that being a godly man is, is not just enough for me to seek God. And it's not just enough for me to tear down all the worship centers of all the things that my grandpa and dad had set up. That's just not enough. That I need to create an area of worship for my own family. That I need to find a place of worship for my own family. And so he starts to build or rebuild the, the temple to the Lord. And he, this is not just for his own family. This is also for his entire nation of Israel that they would begin to go to a godly church and they would begin to worship God in a, in a godly way. And, and it's interesting because this is often a time that those young adults who at you know, 20, they, they decide to use their freedom and they use their excess and they use it to jet away from the Lord as much as, as quick as possible. It's often, though, when they have kids that that's when they start showing up to church again. Now, why is that? It's because as soon as you have a kid, you realize, <laughs> I need help. I don't know what I'm doing. And so it's often when someone has a child, they begin to realize that they need God's help. And they want now to, to raise their children in a way that they were raised and they hadn't really ever thought about those things before. And so they come back to a church. That's why our children's ministry at Grace is so important. Many of you serve in our children's ministry. That is a vital ministry at Grace Community Church. 
for a couple of reasons. One, it allows for those parents who do want to grow in their faithfulness to the Lord or come back to the Lord, it gives them a place to have their kids be, um, a safe place, a place that the kids want to go. That's good. Then mom and dad can come and sit in here and, and hold hands together and worship God together. There is nothing more bonding or binding uh, or unifying in a marriage than worshiping the same God together. All at the same time, the kids are not just like being babysat. We don't, we don't do like child care. It's genuine ministry. We teach the Bible to the kids at an age and stage appropriate way. We teach the Bible to them. And so here you have a, a family who realize they need God's help, and they are desperate for that kind of help, and they come here, and as they leave an hour and 15 minutes later, they are now more closely bonded than they ever have before. And then at Grace, we have this system where at junior high, then junior high and high school students attend worship services with their family. So we have a lot of junior high and high school students in here today, and that's on purpose because there's nothing more bonding for a family than to worship God together. And, and so he decides to, to implement worship and, and, um, and rebuild what had been um, demolished. And it's interesting what happens. Look at verse 14 of chapter 34. A really interesting discovery. It says, When they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Huh. Who to thunk? A Bible in a church. I mean, this country had not seen a Bible in a church. It had been so depraved The worship was all religious, but it had nothing to do with God. And now they discover a a writing all the way back from Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I don't know which ones of all that was, but I think I have a clue which one it was. I'll show you in a minute. All written by Moses. And it's a discovery. And it's a good one. And notice the response. It gets read to him. The priest reads it to him in verse 19. When the king heard the words of the law, he, that's Josiah, tore his clothes. Now, for you, that would be a bad thing. <laughs> you spent so much money on them. But for, for in that culture, tearing your clothes was a, an act of humility. And as soon as he heard the words of the Lord read to him, it, 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 it affected him in such a way that he, as a, in a, an act of humility, he tore his clothes of I am not, I'm not worthy, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm too humbled for any of these things. And this discovery of the Bible, this discovery of, uh, uh, and the worship of the Lord in his own life, translated into something even bigger. Look at verse 31. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before God to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all of his soul. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, that's the Deuteronomy that we just read. You know, you, you parents, you love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
And so here he is. He is now committing his, with all of his heart and with all of his soul to perform the words of the covenant written in the book that they had found in the, in the worship center. And not only that, verse 32, moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand with him in their commitment to God and worship him. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God and the God of their fathers. And with this response, he staved off or held back God's judgment upon the southern kingdom because I remember, remember, there had already been two bad kings. <laughs> they, had a, they had a spanking coming, if you know what I mean. They had two evil kings. And with this turn of Josiah to the Lord and having his, his nation follow him in it, he then staves off, holds back the judgment of God because now they've turned back to him. All the way from a child already doing things that was right in God's eyes, being saved as a teenager, as a young adult, passionately running towards the things of God as opposed to running away, as an adult, not only, not only doing it himself, but then making sure that the rest of his family and the rest of the kingdom could do the exact same thing. I mean, this guy is like almost the perfect parent. But then the last stage is he's a parent. And that's an unfortunate thing. Now, you'd think that with a man like this, you would think that the kids that came from him are going to be perfect. I mean, he had all of his X's and O's together. He, he, had, he had everything right. He'd been praying for his kids, raised his family. And yet, the Bible tells us that both of his sons were disastrous leaders and evil men. The first one is Jehoaz. And look at what it says in 2 Kings. I have it up here on the screen so you don't have to turn there. In 2 Kings, this is describing his son Jehoaz. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Not his own biological father, but all of the other kings before him. His, his grandpa and his great-grandpa Manasseh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it wasn't long, it was about three months <laughs> that, that his kingdom lasted. And in 2 Kings chapter uh, 23, verse 33, it says this, Pharaoh imprisoned Jehoaz that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a fine of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Not only did he get removed, but the rest of the nation had to pay taxes to have him removed. <laughs> Such a bad king. Evil. I mean, this is the son of this great man of God. Not only that, Jehoiakim, turn in your Bibles to chapter 36 of Second Chronicles. Jehoiakim was his other son, and he reigned for 11 years. So, 2 Chronicles 36, look at verse 5. It says, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. Not so bad so far. But notice the next phrase. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. So, he, he's not following his dad's pattern at all. 
he has a wonderful dad, a godly dad, and now we have the second son who is also living in an evil way. Verse 6, now as a, as a re- response of discipline, God then brings Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Look at verse 6, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him with bronze chains to take him to Babylon, takes him away. Evil king, God takes him away. And not only that, Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in the temple at Babylon. The church that Josiah had set up, the temple that, God, that he had set up to, to worship God, now the Babylonians come in and completely plunder and, and take the, the, the implements of worship out of the, the temple and take them back to Babylon where there is no God and those things are used for godless worship again. And Jerusalem is essentially no more. And really the only remnant ultimately of the Jews are the, the Jews that are slaves in Babylon, you know, uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They end up being the, the only remnant left from this such godly nation that Josiah had designed. Now that is a letdown. I mean, imagine, imagine being Josiah and parenting them. I would have assumed that with such a wonderful parent that the kids would have turned out at least better than that. You know what's interesting? Interesting statistics. Out of all the uh, kings of the southern kingdom, 20 or so, only one godly king produced godly offspring. That's pretty significant. Out of all the godly kings of the southern kingdom, only one, Asa, ended up having godly offspring. And th- this is why I wanted to preach the sermon today. You know, I thought about preaching the sermon kind of at the end to, to, to recap. It's not that Josiah was a bad parent at all. This is not like a don't do what Josiah did. That's, you know, we're going to do that one next week. But there are two things that we learn from Josiah's story that, is, that are very important when it comes to us having kids in the home and us having kids that are gone from the home. Here are two conclusions that we can draw Uh, from a parenting perspective, from Josiah's life. First, perfect parenting doesn't guarantee perfect kids. Being a perfect parent does not, there's not a math equation there. Even if a child has a perfect dad, has a perfect mom, has a wonderful upbringing, that child can still decide to run away from the Lord. Just because a parent is perfect, just because there's a wonderful upbringing, that doesn't mean that there's a guarantee that there's going to be a perfect child. You know, sometimes we think that the X's and O's, that if I do all the right things, if I follow Pastor Chuck's map of of discipline from Growing Kids God's Way, you need to take Pastor Chuck's class of Growing Kids God's Way. If you have kids in class, next time he does it, you take it. Okay, There's a whole discipline, you know, how do I discipline in this situation, in that situation? Are they being childlike? Are they being rebellious? Oh, it's good. And the assumption is that if you follow that, then the result will be perfect kids. 
because you followed everything in, in order. And it's possible that if your kids don't turn out the way that you thought they would, it's possible, here's the danger of the idea of perfect parenting, it's possible that you could assume that God did not keep His promise to you about perfect kids. You could assume that God maybe even was unable to keep His promise to you to give you perfect kids. You could assume that God is somehow punishing you through your children because of the way that they turned out. And you you never thought through the, the idea that the kids are their own people. And, and, and of course, we want nothing but the best for them. We, we pray for them. We want them to be saved early in life, thereby avoiding the mistakes that we've made in our own life. But the Bible tells us that parents are not responsible for their children as they grow up into adults. The children are responsible for themselves. This is what Hebrews 9, 27, and 28 says. Um, it's possible that if you're in one of our small groups, you might have already memorized the first part of this, but the second part is equally interesting. It says this, and inasmuch as it, as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Let's stop right there for a minute. When a person is judged, they are judged on their own. They are not judged based on what other people did. They are not judged for, you're not judged for what your parents did, for example. When you're judged in front of God, some of the evidence isn't things that your parents did. It's only the things that you did. And so that means when, when, as a parent, you end up in heaven on judgment day, you are not judged for what your children do. You are judged for what you did. Parents can't bear the burden of their children's missteps, but someone can. That's the rest of this verse. It says, and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear for a second time for salvation without reference to sin, but to those who eagerly await him. So parents can't bear the burden of of their children's sins. They can't own what their children did, but who can? Jesus Christ can. That's why Jesus Christ died on the cross. He died to, to bear our burdens. He died so that, so that we could go to heaven. He died so that our kids could go to heaven when they put their faith and trust in him. And so hopefully this is a little bit freeing to know that perfect parenting does not guarantee perfect children. And biblically, parents are not responsible for what the, the adult children do once they're out of the house. That those adults are responsible for what they do once they're out of the house. So I guess you could almost say it like this, that parents don't bear all of the responsibility when their kids don't turn out like they were hoped to have turned out. Parenting perfectly, even if there was such a thing, and Josiah was probably the closest possible, does not guarantee that you're going to have perfect kids. Now, secondly... And maybe even more importantly, imperfect parenting doesn't guarantee damaged kids. (laughs) Because we realize, oh no, I'm not perfect. And if I'm not a perfect parent, then perfect parenting doesn't guarantee perfect kids. 
And so if I'm not a perfect parent, what does that mean for my kids? <laughs> like, if they're not perfect, even with a perfect parent, I'm going to like completely mess them up because I'm a messed up person. But it's important for parents to know that imperfect parenting does not guarantee damaged kids. It, it, that's not the math. Parents are always going to do things that, that they, it, later on in life, as the kids have moved out, that there's going to be regrets. Every parent will. And, and for every parent, there will be things that they wish they had done, that they had not done, that they thought about later when their kids were already gone and out of the house. And there are things that parents will say that later on that they will regret. And there are things that a parent will not say that they wish they would have said when their kids were younger, but now they're out of the house and it's, it's impossible to say them anymore. But th- that imperfection of a parent doesn't guarantee you messing up your kids. Look at Josiah. Josiah is the, is the answer to that. Josiah, he had a terrible grand. grand grandpa. Terrible, evil. His dad said, I could do that better. I'm even more evil. I, 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 I built on to the evilness. He doubled down on the evilness. Now imagine growing up in that family. I mean, anybody looking from the outside would say, that, that, that kid is on a terrible trajectory. Anybody from the outside would say, that's impossible for, for that kid to, anything good to ever come from that kid. And yet, Josiah ends up being the most godly king of the southern kingdom. How could that even be? It's because the imperfectness of his parenting didn't guarantee a damaged kid. I mean, hopefully that that brings some hope for you. We're all imperfect parents. We've all done things that we have regretted, and yet that doesn't cause or determine the position of our children. Now, some of you were raised in a home with absolutely no, <laughs> no Christian anything at all. And so don't let that be an excuse for you to just live a life that's far from God. I think the reason that you're probably here is because you don't want to, but your upbringing says nothing about what you can be in the Lord. Look at Josiah. There, there is hope no matter the upbringing. And if you were raised in a Christian home and, and, and now at some point in time, you have to do something with it. If you're an adult, you have to decide, are you going to swim in the waters of ungodliness or are you going to live for Jesus? Those of you who are junior high and high school students, are you going to live for Jesus or are you going to test out the, the waters of ungodliness? You're going to have to come to those decisions. Don't just take it for granted that just because you grew up in a Christian home that it's just already done for me. It's not. The Bible says that we're all separated from God because of our sin, even those kids who were raised in a Christian home. And if you realize today that you've not put your faith in Christ like Josiah did, that today's the day that you can. Your sins can be forgiven. Your sins can be removed. That's exactly who Jesus is. He hung on the cross so that your sin could be paid for. He can carry your sin. No one else can. The Bible even says that if you try to carry your sin into death, that you will pay for it for all of eternity in a place called hell. But you don't have to. Jesus has died for your sin, and you can put your faith in him and allow him to forgive 
to remove your sin. I'm going to give, give you the opportunity to do that. I'm going to ask all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes? Just create a little separation between you and the person next to you for just a minute. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if, if, you, want, if you want Jesus to carry your sin, to bear your burden, then all you do is you talk to him. You put your faith in him. You believe who he is. And you just do that through mental, uh, heartfelt um, assent to the Lord. You don't have to say anything out loud. It doesn't have to be verbal. You just pray. You just talk to him. And if you're not sure what to say in the quietness of your own heart, this is what you could say. He reads your mind. You could say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that that separates me from you. I, I, I know I need my sin to be forgiven. I want my sin to be forgiven. And I now realize that Jesus is the only one that can bear that burden. I believe that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for my sin. And I believe that he rose from the grave three days later on Easter, doing the impossible, proving that he can do the impossible, which is remove my sin. And I put my belief, my trust in him. The Bible promises three days, the Bible promises that after that three-day resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. And if your head's still bowed and your eyes still closed, he is, stand, he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and he is an intercessor. He's an in- intermediary between us and God. He, he's the one that, that ha- helps um, us talk to the Lord. And he sends his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to come and live inside of you, to help you live a life honoring to God, including he will help your, parent, your parenting. So God, we as a church, we thank you. You thank you for your provision with these stories like Josiah. We pray that we could um, be encouraged by the words that are here. I pray that, um, that you would lead our children, whether they're young or old, to a saving faith in yours. That through our influence as parents in some way, that our light can shine before them in such a way that they would put their faith in you. I pray for the salvation of our kids and that then their lives would show it just like it did in Josiah's. We ask for these things and we praise you that you can do these things in Jesus' name, amen.